This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. Well, let me start off this, Steve. I'm not sure that I like you. In those days, too, everybody paid their own way. We did, fortunate enough to put them in a room, but it might have been eight or ten in that room. 
Well, actually, I was smut before smut was smut. I said, if I can be successful as Steve Segor, and I will be pleased with my career. All the stars were lined up, and we stayed in the lead lap all day long, and it was amazing. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QAir. And Steve, last week, we got a tweet that I have to share. It came from Alex DeLong at AlexDeLong51, and it read, For some reason, I just came across the podcast. I've listened to 13 episodes in the last day and a half. (laughs) 13 episodes, Steve. I can't get enough of it. So I responded back to Alex, and I said, Listen, the first step in getting help is admitting that you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 12-step program available. <laughs> 13 episodes in a day and a half, man. Steve, can you believe that? No, I really can't, but I'm very, I'm very proud of the boy. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex is on this epic binge listen of our show. So here's a question for you, Steve. That kind of brought something to mind. What is your favorite television show to binge watch, or is that something that you and Margaret do? Oh, yes, especially during this virus. We have discovered many new series on Netflix, and I never heard of most of them. And we started watching them, and we could not quit. And even I called my daughter and said, you got to watch this, and she got hooked. This was shows like uh, Hell on Wheels. You would think that's about race cars or something, but it's not. It's about the American West and the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. And hell on wheels is what they call the temporary tent towns that sprung up as the uh, construction moved toward the West. These tent towns had bars, saloons, and female accompaniment and things like that. That's what it was all about. And then there's another one called Turn about Washington spies in the Revolutionary War. Uh, and then there was one called Ripper Street, which I thought was going to be a bunch of Jack the Ripper murders. It is not. It's a very good series of mysteries in Whitechapel in London at the time of the Ripper or soon after. And it involves an inspector who was stationed there in Whitechapel and almost solved the Ripper mysteries, but he had not. And he goes on to other mysteries that, it, that involve all types of uh, British history. It's very interesting. It's got the elephant man and everything in it. So we're just having a pretty good time. Well, Steve, our go-to shows are shows like The West Wing. Love that show. Probably the best writing of any TV show that's ever been on TV. Hour-long drama. That was a fantastic show that we're big fans of. Frasier. Love Frasier. Couldn't tell Uh, you how many times we've gone through that. And then there's the Big Bang Theory. And we just got through watching it not too long ago. And when it comes to audiobooks, Jeannie is a huge Harry Potter fan. And she will listen to all seven audiobooks straight through on her drives to work. And as a result of that, I would put her up against anybody in the world in a Harry Potter trivia contest, including J.K. Rowling herself. Now, that's really a good claim there. (laughs) 
So, Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the first of what will be a two-part interview with Jimmy Means, who was and still is the very essence of what it means to be an independent driver. Now, this week, Jimmy and I kind of discovered that we've got more in common than just our connections to NASCAR. And the highlight of the interview, he busts your chops a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, he did. (laughs) Jimmy also talked about his move from the late model sportsman ranks to the Winston Cup circuit and some of the help that he got along the way. And Steve, one of the things that I enjoy doing is kind of opening up our interviews to some of our listeners on Twitter and on Patreon. And for this interview with Jimmy Means, we had several send in questions for him. And I always enjoy hearing what kinds of questions our listeners come up with because it really helps me to know what kinds of things that they're interested in hearing about. Yeah, yeah. and they ask some mighty good questions, by the way. Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the April 23rd, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene. Here is a question for you. How many times was Jimmy Means featured on the cover of Winston Cup Scene? Uh, if I had anything to do with it, none. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? Just just kidding. Technically, you would be correct because he was never featured on the cover of Winston Cup scene, but he was featured on the cover of Grand National scene twice. How about that? I didn't know that. Yes. Here's another piece of trivia for you. The very first tweet that I ever sent out on the scene vault Twitter account was an image of Jimmy Means's 1979 appearance on the cover of grand national scene. Really? That's the very first one I ever saw. How about that? The issue of the week that we're going to discuss though is April 23rd, 1987. And that issue featured JD McDuffie, James Hilton, Jimmy Means and Elmo Langley's car on the cover with Soroyan Humphrey doing a pretty extensive Q&A with all of them. I think that was a story organized about the plight of the independents during that particular time. Uh, you know, they were still racing as independents, and things were sort of getting a little bit out of hand. The sport was pricing them just about ready to price them out of business. There were also some really great feature stories in this off-week issue on engine builder Keith Dorton, Herb Nab making a little bit of a return to the sport with Harry Gant, and competitors who were going through media training at the time. Yeah, that was a part of the sport. I don't know if they formally do it anymore. I tend to doubt it. But back then, when the sport kept growing and drawing more media attention, the role of the drivers changed a little bit. They had to be able to adapt and conduct themselves well in front of the media. That was very important. Steve, I would be willing to bet that media training today would come before a test session on the racetrack. (laughs) (laughs) You might be right. (laughs) Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Chris Frazier. So, Chris, thank you. Thank you for your belief in what we are trying to accomplish with this podcast. I appreciate it. Support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, our presenting sponsor, and also support Brian Kelb at Speedway Screens. And if you can, help us out on a monthly basis via patreon.com 
slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Jimmy, I read in an old issue of Grand National Scene that your dad repaired refrigeration equipment and that your mom worked for the Army. What did she do? She was records management. I don't know what the records were that she took care of, but uh, the filing system and all that, of, of whatever went on on the Army base. What Army base? Reston Arsenal. Really? Yes. Okay. Well, Hustle, guess Alabama. Steve, here's a trivia question for you. Okay. Go ahead. I was born on Redstone Arsenal. You were? Yes. How about that? So there's my early connection to NASCAR already. <laughs> <laughs> you and Jimmy. Okay, Jimmy, it's a prerequisite for any Jimmy Means interview, so I'll go ahead and get it out of the way. How did you come up with the nickname Smut? Well, let me start off this, Steve. I'm not sure that I like you. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, this is an awesome interview already. <laughs> 37 years ago, you told me I could hold my fan club meetings in a phone booth. Now, that, somebody is feeding you the wrong oh, stuff. No. <laughs> I wrote that about Tommy Gale. Well, you wrote about me? Well, you didn't write about me. You told me in person. Oh, well, I felt like we're friends enough that I could do that. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, have you got the number of the local law enforcement in case I need to break this up? Nine one one. If I'm correct, you um, were interested and intrigued by Smokey. That's unit, right. Correct? Yep. What, what about him intrigued you so much? Well, it, when I first started out wanting to... to I wanted to build a race car first, I guess, before I wanted to drive, but then that was a prerequisite to have a car. So I was, got intrigued with Smokey and, and read all the articles that he published on how to uh, build motors and uh, all this sort of stuff, and uh, I got to where I would quote him all the time. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, to learn from some late model guys back in the day. And uh, I quoted Smokey so much, they said, well, you'll never be a Smokey, so we'll just call you Smuck. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of stuck, you know. I'll, you know, people still call me Smud on occasion, but there's people from the, from back in the day, so to speak. And uh, uh, I, it was even on my car back in the day, Jimmy Smut means. And uh, uh, it kind of when I went from late mall to Cup, it kind of went with me because Bobby Allison called me Smut at the racetrack, and then, then it just kind of took off. <laughs> now, what did your mama think of that nickname? <laughs> Well, actually, I was smut before smut was smut. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I ha it, it wasn't, it was, you know, back then we didn't think of it as smut or anything derogatory. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, when I changed, I used to, my email used to be smut52 at gmail.com. But every time I'd order something that asked for my email address, I would tell them they'd kind of snicker a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> and then a little bit of silence. And so then I changed it to NW52. So, uh, yeah, I was smut when it was a clean word. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what would be awesome if you moved your shop to Yakinville and there's a road in our county that's called Booger Swamp Road. You're kidding me. So how cool would it be for smut maids to be on Booger Swamp Road? <laughs> 
and call and order stuff all day. I'd call and order stuff all day on Amazon just just to tell people where I lived and what my name was. This so. is starting to get out of hand. <laughs> well, when I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, we had a little uh, village right next to our housing development. It was called Boogertown. <laughs> so we, we, we call it, we're from Boogertown. So. <laughs> all right. So, Jimmy, you did win track championships and a lot of races at Huntsville and also at Nashville in the 1970s. You ran your first couple of cup seasons in 1976 and 1977 with Bill Gray listed as the car owner. How did that come about? How did you decide to make the, the move up? Well, we were, we were pretty successful at Huntsville, Birmingham, and Nashville. And uh, at one point, we were leading all three championships for the, the track championships at the same time, and fortunate enough to win two of them. And on the one we lost at Birmingham – was basically because that uh, it rained a race out on Friday night and they decided to run on Saturday. So I said, well, I'm not going to run Birmingham. i got to go to Nashville because it pays the winner more to win that championship. And we did. So, and then uh, the next year we were uh, leading the points again with four races to go and we stripped our spur gears and we lost the lead. And even though there was four uh, races left on the schedule, they never ran another race. I was the first guy from out of town to ever win the championship there, and they didn't want me to win it the second time. That's what I figured. So anyway, <laughs> I didn't win it, and so I had an opportunity to a friend uh, met a guy in Birmingham that has a bunch of parts that he got. He bought from another guy for another guy that didn't didn't do anything with him. So he offered them to me. So I said, "Well, heck yeah, we'll just build us a cup car," because I kind of felt like I didn't want to go back to Nashville after getting slighted like that, and uh, so we. We, we built it from the junkyard, and what he gave me a roll cage kit and a rear end housing, and we built a cup car. 1977, you finished eighth in the Daytona 500, and that was your first ever Winston Cup top 10 finish. Do you remember anything in particular about that day, and were you maybe thinking at that point <laughs> that you had this cup thing figured out? Not really. Let, let me go back to Bill Gray. The reason Bill Gray was uh, listed as the owner on my cup car because I couldn't afford two uh, licenses. So we just <laughs> he agreed to be the owner and uh, just save me, the, you know, the, the, the license fee. So, uh, and then we had to go through something with the IRS because even though I claimed all the money, he didn't. So then he got, we had to get it to a little powwow to fi- figure out, okay, we paid the taxes on the money. He wasn't really the owner, so we got that all straightened out. But anyway, uh, yeah, going to uh, uh Daytona finishing eighth was, you know, was something. It was just, you know, I couldn't believe that we finished eighth. I, uh, I asked because you know, I think we had two radios. We didn't know, you know, didn't anybody tell you where we were running and all that. And after the race, I asked the guys, "Where did we finish?" They said eighth. I said, "No way." <laughs> and I was just blown away that we, you know, that we ran that good. And uh, but no, I didn't think that we had it, you know, by the tail by no means. It's just that. Uh, it was maybe something that we could do. And uh, I remember going to uh, Richmond was the next race. And uh, was in the sign-in. Back, you know, didn't have hard cars and all that. Everybody had to go to the sign-in check. And uh, and uh, D.K. Ulrich said, hey, there's a man right there that made all the money. Talking about Daytona. So I think it was eleven grand. <laughs> <laughs> now, had you seen anything like Daytona before then? Had you run... Talladega or Daytona the year before? I had been a couple of times in a, in a sportsman car. Okay. So it wasn't totally new. What was your impression 
the first time you went out on a track like Daytona or Talladega? Uh, Talladega stuck, you know, kind of got my attention more than uh, Daytona did because it's just a lot wider and just, you know, only an eighth mile longer, but it just seems like it's just, you know, it's just huge. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, we, we adapted pretty well and, you know, I think we tucked to it pretty good. Jimmy, from day one in this sport, you've had a lot of help from a lot of different people. And I, I found a list of some of the people that helped you out along the way in this issue of Grand National Scene. Shelly Black was an electrical engineer who helped you out financially. Jim Williams bought you a van to ferry your crew to races. Bill Gray, you mentioned him. Uh, he evidently quit his job, drew unemployment benefits while he was working for you. J.D. Smith, J.P. Roberts, Joe Woods. They worked in the end of the wee hours of the morning. Out on the road, you had people like Billy Joe Potts and Daytona who sheltered and fed your crew. And then Taylor Brown in North Wilkesboro. And I actually know Taylor. Uh, he helped my wife out in uh, some election stuff. But what do you remember about those folks in particular who helped you out along the way? Well, we first off, we would never made it without those kind of people to help us and and that's the way we make it today we still have individuals at different parts of the country that will you know that that bought their license they will come to help us so you know in those days all the independents that probably had one guy that went with them i had one guy that went with them jd mcduffie had one guy henley gray had one guy buddy arrington had one guy which was his son so that's how we made it we pulled all the resources and that's just how we got by that's how we did it without those guys you know you can't and then in those days too, everybody paid their own way. They bought their own license. Their own. We did fortunate enough to put them in a room, but it might have been eight or ten in that room at times. <laughs> but uh, that's how we made it. Yeah. And, and you know, I owe everything to those guys. If, if it wasn't for those th- those people that put their time and effort and even their finances to help me, we would never made it. The shop you had in Huntsville, it didn't have heating or air conditioning. Is that true? Early on, my shop didn't. Yeah, we had a smudge spot in it. You know what a smudge spot yes, is? Yes, I do. And uh, we'd have to wait when we got ready to quit. We'd have to shut the smudge spot off and had to wait till it blow up before we leave to make sure it didn't blow <laughs> the carriage thing. But it just go woof, and then it was done. So, but yeah, that's all. That's all we had. It was 110 degrees in the summertime in there. <laughs> yeah. No, no insulation and a sh- uh, shingle roof. It was hot. I bet. Jimmy, what was your goal at that point? Were you looking to get picked up by one of the bigger teams to drive for them? Or were you really and truly trying to make it on your own and do your own thing and be your own boss? Well, you know, I never looked that far ahead. Basically, you know, when I got into this on the cup side of it, you know, I was uh, impressed with Cecil Gordon. He he ran real well. And I had good equipment, and he kept it up nice. And I said, if I can be successful as Cecil Gordon, I will be pleased with my career. And, uh, you know, and if, if, if we got better, then naturally those other things would come for us, maybe getting to drive for somebody else. The original driver of the number 24 car. Exactly. The original Gordon to drive the number right. 24 car. <laughs> Cecil's not with us anymore, is he? I don't believe so. No, he's not. No, no. no. Jimmy, we had a question from Jeff Markoski. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for being with us. Back then, did you get any help from the big teams, meaning used tires, chassis, engines, tools, or anything like that? And did the independent teams of yourself, D.K. Ulrich, J.D. McDuffie, and Dave Marcus 
stick together back then. And I say stick together, I mean just to survive. Well, you know, we all, we all kind of looked at one another. If, if we needed something, they could get it and vice versa. So we all had to kind of pool our resources, you know, because uh, there's no way we could take everything we needed to the racetrack. So I'm going to tell you a quick story with Buddy Arrington and Joy Arrington. I was, I was still driving, and uh, we were parked side by side, and uh, I asked uh, Joey, I said, Joey, can I borrow a drain pan? We've got to change a gear or something like that. He said, no. Daddy said we couldn't load anything out. I said, well, okay. And within 30 minutes, he came over said, uh, uh, Jimmy, I need to borrow an eighth-inch drill bit. <laughs> I said, Joey, you can't loan me a drain pan. I can't loan you a drill bit. Okay, I understand. 30 minutes later, he came back. He said, don't worry about anything you need, you can get. So, <laughs> so I mean, we had to rely on everybody yeah, else. But he set him straight. <laughs> yeah. About the bigger teams, was there a bigger team that maybe helped you out in particular? Or? Uh, not necessarily in the start when I just, because I was a new and nobody knew me and blah, blah, blah. Uh, didn't get much much help. You know, I did get a little help from Bobby. I, I could go to his shop and look at his equipment and we'd go back and build our own. But far as any, you know, uh, probably the best person in that garage area was Junie Dunleavy. Hmm. And why he's not in the Hall of Fame right now, I can't understand it. But that man, he's a prince. And, he, you know, he, if he had it, you could get it. So Now, when it came to the teams like you guys and J.D. and Junie and, and some of those teams, as much as you looked out for each other, though, was there a competition amongst you guys? Oh, yeah, definitely. We tried to be the best of the independents. You know, you wanted to – there was probably eight or ten we call funded guys, and we was, there was probably 30, 25 or 30 independents, and we wanted to be the best one of those guys. Well, along those lines, as well as you'd run at uh, Huntsville and Nashville, how difficult for you was it to manage your own expectations once you made the move to Cup? I mean, you went from one stratosphere – to a quite different well, one. The uh, last year I ran late model sportsman, we won. We we took in like thirty five thousand dollars. And first year of cup, I won nineteen thousand. So we about starved to death. So my expectations at that time were just to eat and, and, and survive. <laughs> so uh, you know, being racing out of Alabama and all the races being uh, Nashville and Talladega was the closest race to us, two hours away. And all the others were 8 to 10 to 17. I mean, Richmond was like 16 or 17 hours, you know. And we ran on Sunday, got back Monday morning. And then again, we had to leave uh, on Wednesday night because then we had two or three rounds of qualifying. We're Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was tough. Our next question is from Matt Elliott. Hey, guys. Thanks for fielding questions. Rick, thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for somehow getting Jimmy Means to come on to your show. Jimmy. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of good stories in your plethora of knowledge of racing. You've done it your whole career. Um, congrats on the 23 finish at the uh, Daytona Road Course. That's a pretty good finish, especially when your driver has never even been there. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, now for my question. Uh, I know you've done NASCAR your whole career. Uh, you've been a driver owner. I know you've probably done dirt track, late model, all that good stuff. Has there ever been a uh, different type of racing that ev has ever interested you where you thought, man, I'd really like to run an Indy car or I'd really like to run a Formula One or anything like that? Thanks. 
you've, you've had that match, you've had that hat a long time. So <laughs> I hope it's in better shape than mine, but uh, keep it clean. No, actually not. I've never drove dirt in my life and never had any kind of inkling to drive an Indy car. But, uh, I mean, I, I have, I've never even been to any. I would like to go and watch a race, if, you know, but I, no, I never, never thought never crossed my mind. So you've never been to a cup race there? No, no. Uh, IndyCar race. Okay, all right. Oh, yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, 1983 Talladega, you finished seventh on the lead lap. Now, what do you remember about that day? Well, uh, we had to use a provisional to make the race to start with. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, we started 42nd or 43rd. And uh, went around a few laps, and then there was a, was a caution. We topped off with fuel. The leaders didn't pit. So went back green, and never, there wasn't another caution before they needed gas. So they pitted for gas. They, I got lapped. Mm-hmm. They pitted for gas, I mean for fuel and everything else, but I'd had enough to go past that point of the caution to the next caution, and they had to pit for fuel and tires. And I got my lap back when they pitted. And then from then on, every time I needed a caution, it came out. Hmm. They got they got fifty yards behind me one time to lap me. Caution came out, so it just all the all the stars were lined up, and we stayed in the lead lap all day long, and it, it was amazing. <laughs> oh wow! Well, at, at what point did you move here to Forest City, and what was your reasoning for making that move? Well, like we talked earlier, it was just killing us to, the drive uh-huh. to to. Uh, uh, all the races and I said I was going to have to quit or move and I decided to give it a try to move and moved here because and there was two people that uh, here that said if you move to Forest City we'll go to work for you and those people that uh, used to work for help Cecil Gordon so and uh, the man uh, Stud Murray Broadway Motors guy he was a little bit of financial help back then and he lived here so it's hard to move somewhere where you don't have any connections right and I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of connection here so it's been the best move I ever made for us racing. I should have made it earlier. Hey, Rick. Thanks for this opportunity. Hi, Jimmy. My name's Hallie Emery. My question is, from 1985 to 1988, the Pontiac Grand Prix had three different body styles. Could you tell us about the differences in each of those body styles, the handling characteristics, and how that affected your team in terms of having to change from one body style to another? I appreciate this, and thanks in advance. Have a great day. Well, we're, we were fortunate then that Pontiac and General Motors was was helping everybody that, that drove Pontiac pretty much. So we got all the sheet metal from Pontiac, and we basically all those three cars, especially our speedway our speedway car was the same chassis, all those all those all those, all those different body styles. So it, it you know the they were pretty much all the same for us. You know when we went to the like the '88 or '89, the car was a lot smaller. But it, it, you know, it wasn't. It didn't have a lot of downforce, a lot of grip, like like maybe the Fords did. And so, and, then, and we, that's when, I think '90 we went to Fords just because we couldn't keep up with the Pontiacs anymore. And Pon- and the Ford was the best move we made to change it to Fords. Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. 
I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Skeenball podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Skeenball podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast and at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team and helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Okay, Steve, once and for all, what is your side of the story about giving poor old Jimmy Maine such a hard time about having to hold his fan club meetings in a telephone booth? I told him I never wrote that. I wrote that about Tommy Gale, another independent driver who drove Elmo Langley's cars a lot of times. I was friends with Tommy. I could write stuff like that. But then Jimmy reminded me it was done at a roast, and I think J.D. McDuffie was the, was the target of that roast. But Jimmy was in attendance. He also, I think, gave a roast about J.D., and I just happened to make a comment about him in front of the people that he had to hold his fan club meetings in a telephone booth. Jimmy, remember that after all these years? Well, uh, Steve, I'm going to tell you, I believe that Jimmy was kind of laying in wait on you for that one. <laughs> he was looking to get that off his chest. That was the first thing he raised. That was about that. He didn't even say hello. <laughs> Poor old Jimmy. Giving him such a hard time. <laughs> Steve, before you and Jimmy started bickering like you did, (laughs) he and I kind of made the connection that his mom worked on Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, which was the very same Army base where I was born. My dad was in the Army when I was born, and she was working there at the time that I came into the world on September the 11th, 1967. Yes, my birthday is 9-11, and I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) I can understand that. (laughs) Steve, I know that you were close to a few of the independent drivers way back when. I know that you were very close to Buddy Arrington and James Hilton. And Jimmy talked about the people who helped him along the way and how his shop in Huntsville didn't have any heating or air conditioning. Steve, what was life like for independents like Jimmy and Buddy Arrington and James Hilton? And those folks. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. Obviously, they were much different in class than the superstars who were winning races. They obviously didn't have the money, and they didn't have the budgets, and they didn't have the equipment. So they had to get by on whatever they could. And sometimes that put them right at the end of the road. But let me tell you a little story. Long about 1975, James Hilton and the other independents got together and actually told Bill France and the rest of NASCAR they were going to quit boycott if they didn't get some financial help. In other words, without them, (laughs) they said those guys that win races don't have anybody to pass. 
and nobody is going to come watch that. They were exactly right. Bill France didn't want to have that, and certainly the promoters didn't want to have it. So Bill France got together with the independent drivers. James Hillen was the spokesman, and he made all the complaints to Bill France about what was going on. So France came back with a plan. Here was the plan. If the drivers would go and attempt to qualify for every Winston Cup Series race, not just a few, but everyone, they would get a bonus for every race they entered. $2,000 for a super speedway, $1,000 for a short track. That money saved a lot of independents' careers because now they could meet their budgets and stay in business. So that helped them for many, many years. But long about 1987, when this story came out, things were changing again. Racing was growing and getting more expensive. And the drivers in the independent class just had to live hand to mouth. Steve, when I first tried to break into the sport in 1991, at least a couple of guys on Jimmy's team kind of took me under their wings, Frank Dries and Nick Nicholson. And I think I kind of gravitated towards them a little bit because they were basically in the same boat that I was. They were paying their own way to the racetrack, as Jimmy mentioned in this interview. Yeah. And they were paying their own way just so they could be involved in a sport that they loved. And that's something that I was doing at the time. I was trying to break into the sport and we've talked about how I would sleep in my car at the racetrack and all that. I identified with them. And at North Wilkesboro in the fall of 1991, that was the race where Harry Gant was going for his fifth straight win and almost won it if it hadn't been for a, what, a 10, 20 cent piece in the brake system. Something yeah. failed and he wound up finishing second to Dale Earnhardt. But at North Wilkesboro that year in the fall, I wound up holding the signboard during the pit stops and I would give anything for a photo from that day of me holding my little signboard. <laughs> I bet you would. I'd like to see that. <laughs> but there was a race within a race back in Jimmy's day on the racetrack, just like there is today. You've got drivers who are expected to win today. And there was a second layer of drivers that it would have been a pleasant surprise to see win. And then you've got drivers who would absolutely shock everybody in and around the sport if they won. And that was the same then. And it's the same now. So right. the competition becomes not necessarily for the checkered flag every week, but to be the best of the rest. And that was just like it was when Jimmy Means was racing Buddy Arrington and James Hilton and Cecil Gordon and whoever was driving for <laughs> Elmo Langley that week. And Steve, you remember Cecil Gordon and, and Jimmy Means mentioned him specifically. Jimmy felt if he could match up to what Cecil Gordon was doing out on the racetrack, then he would feel like he was a success. Tell our listeners who Cecil was. Cecil was an independent driver from North Carolina, and he had his own team and his own operation. And like Jimmy and like Buddy and like James, he didn't have the big budget. He had to go out and race for whatever he could earn. And he did very well. As a matter of fact, I think Cecil was among the top 15 or so in points more often than not. And other independent drivers had very good finishes in the points. And boy, that was a huge windfall for him. James Hillen did a few times. Richard Childers 
did it a few times. Buddy Arrington finished in the top 10 a few times. And this is where they really got the big boost. So naturally, the competition was among themselves. They go into every race saying, look, I know I can't win. A top 10 would be great if I could have a top 10. And to get to that top 10, they knew they didn't have to race a Richard Petty, but they knew they had to race each other. And the best man was not necessarily a winner, but he was a winner when it came to earning points. That was very valuable. And Steve, this is the kind of respect that Cecil Gordon had in particular with his competitors. After his team closed, he went to work for Richard Childress Racing and was a longtime employee there. And that's the kind of respect that Richard Childress had for Cecil Gordon because Richard Childress started out just like Jimmy Means. He started out just like James Hilton, Buddy Arrington, and he got hooked up with Dale Earnhardt as his driver. And that obviously changed the course of his career. Right. So I'll tell you, you, you're right about uh, Cecil and several other of those independent drivers. They earned, a lot of them, the respect of the stars of the day. Let me give you a good example of that. Cecil came to Charlotte with a brand new Oldsmobile one time. I mean, he just built it, built it specifically to run the 600. And he got out there and just couldn't make the field. He failed to qualify. And I was standing there with somebody, and he was saying, you know, there's something wrong with a sport that will not let a man race who has done as much work to bring a new car to a track as Cecil has. I think that's something wrong in the sport of NASCAR when that happens. The man who said that was Buddy Baker. And that's the kind of respect that guys like Cecil earned throughout their careers. Steve, hopefully listeners enjoyed this installment of the interview that we did with Jimmy. And next week is going to be every bit as good, if not maybe even a little bit better. Next week, he talks about his one race deal with Hendrick Motorsports and how that all came about. He talked about his son, Brad and Dale Jr., appropriating the VCR in the RCR hauler to, let's just say, watch a certain type of movie. (laughs) Look out. Look out. (laughs) And then he told another story. Well, let's just say he wasn't as used to speed off the track as (laughs) he was on it. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. The big purchase that Brian made here a few weeks back continues to uncover all these treasures. And there were so many this week. I couldn't, I couldn't begin I, to list I them. Know, I know one in particular. He had a Junior Johnson and Associates t-shirt. And I immediately asked him, what size is it and how much? And he said, sorry, it's going to a former Indy 500 winner. And I wrote back, rats. (laughs) (laughs) That one got gone quick. (laughs) Yeah, should have known. That one got gone quick. So we will keep trying for our Junior Johnson and Associates t-shirt. I'm also still looking for my Bobby Helen Trap Rock Industries t-shirt. but. Steve, you know what? Brian will come through. I don't have any doubts about that whatsoever. I agree. None whatsoever. Brian Kelb is the Indiana Jones of vintage racing apparel. 
<laughs> Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, the April 23rd, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene. The cover story in this issue was on the struggles of Jimmy Means, J.D. McDuffie, James Hilton, and Elmo Langley as independents in NASCAR. And the Q&A by Sororian Humphrey was pretty extensive. It took up four full pages, and some of their responses were pretty telling. When asked how much longer he could survive as an independent, J.D. McDuffie responded, if I don't come up with something this year, I may have to quit. I don't want to. I'm going to go as long as I can without losing everything. Raising has been good to me. It's just the last couple of years, it's been tough money-wise. It's gotten so hard to make a race. They, meaning the big teams, have got all the new tires and qualifying engines. As long as there's good people like Rumpel Furniture, I'll keep going. He gives me money to eat on. Now, that was the status of the independents at the time, okay? Now, compare that back to 1975, before they got the point money. They were on the verge of revolution. It was so bad. Well, they got the point bonus money, and that held a long, long time. But now, as J.D. referred to here, expenses were up. Uh, Qualifying engines, they didn't have qualifying engines. They didn't have stacks of new tires to run at every race, so they were well behind the competition curve. And that's the reason why that situation, the 87, was so similar to the one in 75. Steve, that last statement that he made, he gives me money to eat on, meaning Tom Rumpel, the owner of Rumpel Furniture. That, of course, brought up a follow-up question from Soroyan. Are there really times when you don't have enough to eat? And J.D. said, it gets bad sometimes. The last two years, I've really gotten down two or three times. He's helped me out when I get like that. And, Steve, I think it's important to remember that less than a year after this article came out, J.D. got burned at Daytona and spent some time in the hospital. And once he got out of the hospital, as soon as he could, he went right back to racing. What else could he do? Racing was his life. Racing was how he made whatever money he could make. He couldn't abandon it at the time, not at all. Next up in this feature story was James Hilton, and the brief bio that Soroyan included mentioned that he had quit driving several years previous and that he was filling the car at the time for Tony Spanos, who was from Australia. Right. James had quit driving several years previous. Then he started driving again. Then he quit again. Then he drove again. (laughs) (laughs) My very first scoop at Winston Cup scene, or so I thought, I happened to talk to James, and he told me that he was quitting, that he had some health issues. He was quitting driving. He was never going to drive again. And so I wrote that story, and I was so proud of the fact that I had gotten a scoop for Winston Cup saying, that's what you guys were paying me for. And I wrote the story, and then less than a month later, he showed up at Charlotte to qualify (laughs) for the Winston Open. (laughs) That was James. He knew how much money he had and how much he could race on. And that meant he didn't race every week, didn't have to. 
couldn't, couldn't, let's put it that way. James said in this story, I'm not discouraged. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and act like it doesn't happen. I throw it right back at the promoters in NASCAR. They do nothing to help the independents at all. All the programs that Winston has come up with, hooey. If you're running in the top five, it's wonderful. Behind that, it's garbage. <laughs> That's old James, the revolutionary guy. <laughs> Don't hold back there, James. <laughs> Just like he was back in 1975 when he was a spokesman for the independents. He's doing it again. But this time, I don't think NASCAR cooperated along those lines as much as they did back in 75. However, James did go on to say in the very next breath, in the meantime, I've bought some property. My farm, my shop, I own it. I'm not wealthy. I'm not poor. I've got a place to live. Racing's been good to me. If I had to do it all over, I'd do it all over again the same way. I think that's an important statement right there. James Hilton raced his way, and he wasn't going to let anybody tell him what he should, shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't uh, right. on the race. That was James. That was James. And I've always given him credit for being a sharp businessman. I mean, he did not have his own shop and his own farm and his own cars because he didn't manage his money well. He managed his money very well to be able to do that. Because like he said, he wasn't rich. And like he said, he wasn't poor. But I think he was a good financial manager. Soroyan asked Jimmy Means if he thought he'd be able to run up front if he had Dale Earnhardt's car. And Jimmy said, I think it would take some acquainting time. It's a different deal when you run with something like that after something like what we have. I don't believe I'd be out there lapping them, but I'd be right in there. And then came another follow-up question. So you're not afraid of running up front? And Jimmy responded, no. Who's afraid of running up front? You crash just as bad if you're in the back. I rebuild my own race cars. You're the one that has to go back and fix it. These other guys say, we'll see you next week. They're going to go hunting and fishing. We got to go to work. Being afraid has never been a problem. We've just got to do the stuff ourselves. They wouldn't even be here if they knew they had to put it all back together after they wrecked it. Now, he's exactly right. Oh. Uh, that, that's the difference in one form of racing when you're an independent and the other when you're a winner. Uh, these guys who are independents, they can't afford to wreck. You know, and, and they try not to wreck because they're the ones that have to rebuild the cars. And that's a lot of work. as a different world, Rick. That is a very, very different world. Now, finally, there was Elmo Langley. And Elmo was in the process of talking to someone about buying his shop and him going to work for another race team. He said that he had talked to Darrell Waltrip, Richard Childress, Harry Hyde, and Richard Petty. And he did eventually work for Cal Yarborough before moving over to NASCAR and driving the pace car. And he did wind up selling his team to Jim Testa. And Jim Testa wound up selling his team to Bob Wickham, who was Derek Cope's car owner when Derek Cope won, won the, the Daytona 19, 500. Yeah. Won the 1990 Daytona 500. So there's that connection. Elmo said in this story, I made a lot of mistakes, I guess. I can't blame anybody but myself. I'm the one that has always been an individualist. And if I went and asked somebody for something, I thought I was begging. Well, plainly speaking, I can't kiss anybody's ass. That's probably the wrong attitude to take. 
if I can't get it on my own merit, then the hell with it is the attitude that I've always had. It was wrong. Elmo was right in a way. The independents did ask for help, and they asked for help from the bigger teams. And a lot of times they got that help. I can't tell you how much help Buddy Arrington got from Petty Enterprise. Both were Dodge teams, and Buddy would accept used equipment or some other material from Petty's as often as he could. That's just the way they had to do it. And Elmo is saying here that he didn't like to do that. He didn't do that, and so he thought it was wrong. It was wrong in the sense that he couldn't get at least some equipment to make himself last longer as a driver and owner. That's what he's saying about it being wrong. I admire his absolute attitude of not begging, but when he says it's wrong that you don't go ask a fellow competitor for some help, that's what he's talking about. Well, Buddy Arrington repaid Petty Enterprises by doing things like, well, stopping on the racetrack. Oh, Dover. yeah, Dover. <laughs> <laughs> and letting Richard get back on the lead lap and going on to win the race. But, hey, that's besides the point. That was another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, another feature story in this issue was on Keith Dorton, who is the brother of Randy Dorton, who lost his life in the Hendrick Motorsports plane crash going into Martinsville. Randy and Keith both built engines, and Deb's feature in this issue detailed Randy's relationship with Junie Dunleavy and Ken Schrader. Junie was getting engines at the time from both prototype and automotive specialists, which was Randy's company that he was operating, and it still operates to this day. And from the sound of it, Randy wasn't exactly thrilled <laughs> with that particular development. Ken ran a prototype engine when he qualified third and then won his qualifying race at Daytona that year, but then switched to one of Randy's engines for the Daytona 500, and he went on to finish seventh. Then he went on to sit on the pole at Darlington with an engine that Randy built. And Randy said in this feature, I understand that there are politics involved. I've heard the word politics so many times during the last three months. I don't have a PR man. I don't want one. I enjoy the mechanical end of it, and that is the bottom line. We want to build engines that win races no matter who it is, but we don't want to have to massage anybody to do it. Politics in NASCAR? What? <laughs> Surely you jest, right? <laughs> Joe Biden and Donald Trump have nothing on politics in NASCAR. <laughs> Another feature story in this issue focused on Herb Nabb who came out of retirement to help Harry Gant and Travis Carter at Bristol. Harry had been having trouble finishing races. He had fallen out of four of the six races going into the Bristol event that year in 1987. And then the year before, in 1986, he had failed to finish nearly half of the races. Uh, yeah, things weren't going very well for Travis and uh, Harry at that time. I think it was pretty smart to ask Herb and Ab to help because, as you well know, Herb had plenty of experience in how to win races, most of that time spent with Junior Johnson. Well, he had plenty of experience in winning races in general, but in particular at Bristol. He had won 14 races at Bristol with Fred Lorenzen, Junior Johnson, Bobby Allison, and Kel Yarbrough, and he comes in and he works his magic. He works his mechanical voodoo, and Harry Gant not only wins the pole for that Bristol event, he finished the race 
in sixth place. And the thing is, he might have finished in sixth place, but he'd finished a race. That's period. He finished. <laughs> After spending all that time falling out of races, this was a welcome difference. Herb said in this story, Travis called me Monday and asked me to help him. I just went and did the best I could. And it helps that Harry is a hell of a driver. Travis and me had talked some before this, and I said if he was having problems, I'd be glad to help him. So I came here, and he turned me loose on the car. He said to do it just like I was fixing my own car, and that's what I'd done. Now, Gary McCready's story went on to delve into Herb's background quite a bit. And, Steve, there was some stuff in this story that I did not know about Herb. Uh, me either, I tell you. Herb was born in Colorado. He moved to Idaho with his parents. He left home at the age of 13 to drive a dump truck in Nevada. Three years later, at the age of 16, he's working in the shipyards in Oakland. Then he returned to Idaho and started working in the Dodge dealership. He got in on the ground floor at Holman and Moody. And after that, he joined up with Junior Johnson, where he made a huge name for himself. That's right. That's where I first ran into Herb Nab was at Junior Johnson. Herb was a very quiet guy, but he was very efficient. It seemed to me he was always working at that track. Steve, I thought it was interesting in this issue. The cover story featured independent drivers who were struggling to make ends meet, while another feature story by Deb in this issue detailed the media training that Benny Parsons and Phil Parsons, Harry Gant, Larry McClure, Richard Childress, Dale Earnhardt, Rick Wilson, Terry Labonte, Bill Elliott, Ricky Rudd, Alan Quickie, and Davey Allison had gone through in recent months. So you definitely had the old school in talking about the independent drivers. And here in the very same issue was a story about something that was very, very new school. Going to media training, can you imagine that? Obviously, this is something else that the independent drivers had no chance, no chance at receiving because they didn't have the sponsors who could pay for it. Big difference. Can you imagine a J.D. McDuffie or James Hilton or Jimmy Means in a media training session? (laughs) No, I cannot. As a matter of fact, I don't think they would attend even if they could. (laughs) (laughs) They would be too busy under the hood of their race cars. That's right. That's my point. (laughs) (laughs) Rick Wilson had kind of the money quote in this story explaining why it was so important for a driver to go through media training at that time. He said, it never entered my mind that in being a race car driver, I would have to do anything like this. But as long as there are major sponsors, they will want you to do this stuff. You can no longer drive a race car and go home. This whole thing, Winston Cup racing, has changed so much. Driving a race car is very important, but it's just one aspect of the whole deal. Sponsors want someone who can not only drive a race car, but who can present himself and the sponsor. That is exactly the whole reason for this movement. Sponsors want a driver who can represent them very well. In the old days, there weren't enough big-time sponsors to go around for anybody to care about it. But now, more money was coming in, and sponsors certainly wanted all they could get for their money. And that meant good representation from the drivers. Therefore, media training.
Hey, race fans, this is Brett Bodine, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, my weekly accountability update, I now stand at 4,926.9 miles, which leaves me with 73.1 miles before I hit 5,000. My goal is to finish on September the 19th, and that's what I'm going to do. Period. Oh, I, I know you're going <laughs> to do it, Rick. You're a determined cuss, that's for sure. <laughs> I would have never thought that I'd like a dog like I like Otis. I was the one for years that said I didn't want a dog. Where'd you get him? One of Jeannie's buddies had bought him, and they lived on a golf course. And evidently, it's frowned upon when dogs get out on the golf course and pick up the golf balls and run away with them. (laughs) Evidently, that's a bad thing.